Welcome or welcome back to Lift You Up Inspiring Health Stories. I'm your host, Tamika Bickham. I'm the founder and chief storyteller of TB Media Group. But for the purpose of this podcast, I am your health and happiness matchmaker. Now, today I'm going to introduce you to the family member of someone who needs no introduction, a man whose name is known around the world, George Floyd. Today we're hearing from his oldest cousin, who's talking about their story, the last nine months, and what's next for the family, and how they're going to reclaim the narrative. Our physical, mental, and emotional health is not just a want, it is a need for happy lives and prosperous businesses. Lift You Up is the podcast where we share inspiring health stories from business owners who are fulfilling their purpose to live their healthiest lives and helping you do the same. From former TV reporter to marketing entrepreneur and content creator, I care about sharing stories that matter and stories that connect us. I'm your host, Tamika Bickham, your health and wellness matchmaker. Well, today I'm really honored to be joined by Thomas McLaurin, who is the CEO and president of the George Floyd Memorial Center, as well as George Floyd's oldest cousin. Hi, hi, Thomas. Thanks for being here. Hi, Tamika, and thank you for having me today. It's an honor. It's an honor to have you join me. Um, first, I just want to ask how you and all of your family is doing in, in the nine months since George Floyd was murdered. We're doing we're doing okay. Uh, it has been a while, and it, it seems like it was just you know just a couple of weeks ago because uh, George's name is forever out there. We continuously see uh, documentaries and footage of what happened, so we have to relive that you know a lot. But the good news is that we're not reliving it on our own. We're reliving it with the world, and so people like yourself and others who show sentiments, our family really, really appreciates that. Has the reality of what happened, because I'm sure in the days and weeks after, as this became an international movement, um, it probably felt surreal. Uh, Surreal is probably a good word to to add to the feeling because I, I couldn't find a word. I was in shock maybe for three days and to uh, know that what the world saw with the police officer having his knee on the neck of a human being and then that human being dying in front of everyone's eyes. I mean, even after calling for his mother, it still um, has a, a, a place somewhere in my brain that is not connecting. And to know that this is someone that I knew, this is someone whose blood that, uh, that ran through his veins is the same blood that runs through my veins. When I first saw the video, uh, and I only watched maybe, I don't know, a minute of the video because what I saw was a black man underneath the knee of a police officer. And then when my cousin who actually shared the video with me the day after said, that's our cousin, uh, it, it took a minute to sink in that that's somebody that I know. And so even today, knowing that uh, they're still saying his name, George Floyd. It's, it's, it's still mind-boggling, I should say. Do you remember the last conversation that you had with George? 
Well, I've not seen George since he was four years old, but my sister and some other relatives, they were with George uh, about two years ago. George's dad was my uncle. He was my mom's third from the youngest brother. My mom was the oldest of eight. And when George's dad and his mom divorced, George was only four years old. And she and she had two daughters and George took the kids and relocated to Texas. So uh, I'd not talked to him in a while, but I do remember him running around as a little four-year-old getting into everything. I mean, he was a very, very active uh, young man and just very happy, just always smiling and laughing. I, I don't ever remember him as a little kid, you know, being a fussy baby or a fussy kid. He was just always happy. Could you have, I mean, obviously you couldn't have never imagined something like this happening um, and, and George becoming an international figure and representative of, of movement. Um, what would you say is the status of this movement right now? Of course, no one know, knows what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen five minutes from now. And I actually had someone say to me as we were having a conversation about the whole situation and they found out that uh, George was my relative. This person said, your cousin's a hero. And I said, no, my cousin's not a hero. My cousin was a victim of a heinous act by a police officer. It just so happened that that particular act was a tipping point. And I think what happened is the people all the people, white, black, uh, Native Americans, Hispanic Americans, said enough is enough. Enough is enough. I mean, we can go back to Trayvon Martin. Yeah, there were protests, there were marches, there were speeches, there were, there were things that took place. But after George Zimmerman was um, acquitted, then what? Then we look at some of the others, like Philando Castile. Um, we look at the situation with Breonna Taylor that just recently happened, you know, and we see these people get off, you know. So after the, the, the protests, after the marches, after the speeches, what then? Is there any change? And I think for some reason, a lot of people woke up with George. A lot of people woke up and said, now is the time for change. So what's going on with the movement now is we're starting to see people of influence, corporations, um, politicians, more politicians, because you always would have that one or two who would stand up and say something. I guess for me, and I'm sure so many others, the part that makes me so angry is all those names you just listed, the protests that have come before, and this being the tipping point, why did people need to see such a heinous act for eight minutes and 46 seconds on camera to finally start putting their money where their mouth is? Because it was public. I mean, I, I look at um, the young man who was killed down in uh, the, on the coast of Georgia, Ahmaud Arbery. Okay, Ahmaud was killed several months before people knew that he was dead. I mean, people in that little area knew, his family knew, friends knew, but the world did not know anything about it. 
until the guy who claimed he was just riding along and he was videotaping it until that particular videotape got released. But George's death took place in front of witnesses and the video went viral immediately was when you look at the demeanor of the police officers, especially Derek Chauvin and his trial is, is supposed to start next month. If you look at the demeanor to say you're doing your duty, but you have your hand in your pocket and you're being very cavalier, very nonchalant about that, that struck a nerve with people. And the other point about uh, uh, the nerve was George was saying, mama, I love you. I mean, his last words other than I can't breathe was, uh, I love you, mama. I love you, mama. I do agree with you that I think we we have seen change that we haven't seen before since this. Um, I want to ask you about something timely that happened um, reportedly out of the LAPD. Um, I don't know if you heard about this. Uh, that I guess allegedly some of the police officers internally were circulating some sort of Valentine's card with a picture of George that said, take my breath away. Mm. That is now under internal investigation. Um, had you heard about that? No, that, that's the first I've heard of it, but uh, I'm really not surprised that something like that would take place and still is taking place and it's going to take place in the future. I'm not surprised. If we go back in history and go back to Reconstruction, Reconstruction was one of the worst times for Black Americans. Civil War had just ended. The North came down, beat the South, and came down and policed the South. Okay? They policed the South. In other words, they had troops in places like Atlanta, in Alabama, in Mississippi, in Tennessee, in Virginia, where the capital of the Confederacy was located, they had troops there to make sure that these former Confederates adhered to the policies and the laws and everything that had been created to allow them to come back into the Union. Okay? And so this made uh, the Southerners very, very angry. How dare you tell me someone that was my property is now going to be equal to me? I am to allow them to farm and then keep all the profits. I'm allowed them to own land. I'm allowed them to learn how to read. You're going to create schools so that they can learn how to read. Okay? Because anybody with any brain power knows that if if you are illiterate, right there is half of your problem in making it in this country. After Reconstruction, when they said, okay, it looks like the South is going to acquiesce, they're going to do what they're supposed to do, we can go on back home, okay, soldiers, it's almost like the soldiers that we left over in Afghanistan after the war was over. Um, but we're still going to leave some people over there to make sure that things are run correctly. So when those soldiers says, hey, I need to go home, I need to go back to Boston, I need to go back to New York, I need to go back to Pennsylvania, to my family. Okay, you Southerners, act right, do what you're supposed to do. Okay, we will. But we're going to create a system 
that the, these slaves, well, former slaves, are going to wish they were back in slavery. They're going to wish that they uh, were back to where they had a place where they could lay their head. They had three meals a day. They had a job. <laughs> yeah, a job. Okay. And so uh, this policing started back then. And then you had this organization called the Ku Klux Klan. From my understanding and from what I've read, and I know you can't necessarily believe everything you read. However, there's a lot of truth to a lot of what goes on, uh, on pens, uh, with pen and paper. A lot of the Ku Klux Klan members were actually local sheriffs, local deputies, mm -hmm. local police officers. So stuff has perpetuated itself for years and years and years and years. So for someone to create a Valentine's card and say, take my breath away with a picture of George, I'm not surprised. So we still have work to do. A lot. A lot of work. You do want to be part of the change um, and positive change and using such a horrific situation and instance that impacted your family directly and turn that into something positive. So I do want to talk about the George Floyd Memorial Center. Tell me where the idea came from and where things are right now. Okay, okay. Uh, well, a couple of days after um, the death of George, the family, uh, we had several Zoom calls uh, planning his memorial service. As you know, there were three memorial services that took place. Where he was uh, murdered in Minneapolis, there was one that took place there. And by the way, George moved to Minneapolis to get a fresh start. Because as I said, he, he was no hero, but he was also no saint. He was no angel. But then who is? <laughs> we all have our skeletons in the closet. So he had a, there was a memorial service that was held for him there. His family in North Carolina wanted to have a memorial service there, his birth state. And then of course, where he grew up in Texas, which is where he's buried, and he's uh, actually buried next to his mother. So as that was unfolding and they were coming up with ideas of what they wanted to do for the service. I started talking to uh, one of my uncles who actually lives in Raleigh, North Carolina. And he is my uncle who is just under George's dad. We started talking and we said, we need to do something. We need to do something because we know that there's gonna be a lot of people trying to capitalize on the name George Floyd. So I immediately went to GoDaddy and started buying up domains to keep people from just capturing those domains and then trying to capitalize because you know, if you got a domain that everybody wants, I mean, somebody might offer you $20,000 for it. So we didn't want that to happen where people just started making money off of his name. So I started getting domains and I said, you know, we need to create some sort of memorial center. And so I said, you know, we want to do something to honor the legacy of George, but at the same time, do something to give back. As I mentioned earlier, I'm a, I'm a history buff. I love history. Uh, another person who is a favorite of mine is Mahatma Gandhi. And Gandhi's, one of his quotes simply says, uh, you must be the change that you seek. So I started thinking of what can we do? Well, one of the first things we decided we wanted to do is we want to create a scholarship fund for kids who may want to go to school, but may not have uh, the wherewithal 
and we can maybe put a little money towards their school. We also wanted to focus on uh, HBCU schools as well as technical schools, okay? Uh, we decided to put the center in Raleigh, North Carolina. Now he was born in Fayetteville, North Carolina, but Raleigh is the capital city. It's just the center of tourism. You know, between Raleigh and Charlotte, when people talk about North Carolina, they usually think about those two places. But Raleigh is right near the Research Triangle with Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, uh, major schools there, tourist attractions, uh, uh, restaurants, hotels, all those type things. And so we decided to create the, the scholarship fund. We have some educational programming that we're working on, as well as uh, other types of e-learning uh, uh, ventures. And we want to create a museum so that we can uh, share some of the art that has been depicted, not only of George, but of lots of others, such as Brianna Taylor um, and, and, and a lot of the others that we named. So that's where the idea came from, is we want to do something to give back. We, said, we talked earlier about after the speeches are done, after the protests and the marches, then what? And so that's where our what we're going to do came from. Why specifically this, you know, the scholarships, the giving back, the programming, the e-learning, the museum, um, why is that so important to you? Well, scholarships, obviously, because we know that uh, there's so many kids that go to school and have to get student loans and they end up in debt. You don't necessarily have to be a 3.8 or 4.0 student. We're looking for those kids that may be marginalized, like George. George, you know, wanted to go to college. He wanted to go on and pursue a career in, in sports, you know, but he just didn't have the uh, aptitude to get into school, you know. And so we can do something to sort of sway kids away from, well, I need to go do this to earn money, or let me just hang with these guys that aren't going anywhere. And then the other programs, uh, as I mentioned earlier. You have to have some knowledge. You have to have some education. And we're in such a different uh, uh, time now to where we look at so many kids that are coming out of college and find jobs in their fields because they may not look early on at the fields that are hiring. Um, I like what you said, that this just isn't for the kid with the 3.6, the 3.8, who is excelling in school, but those kids who may be marginalized. And using George as an example, hey, he is not a hero, but he's also not a saint. Um, and I know we had a, a conversation offline that he grew up in poverty, right? Mm -hmm. He didn't right. grow up with opportunities that a lot of other kids have. Um, so is it kind of taking a look at that situation as well and saying, hey, how can we prevent this cycle from continuing? You know, unfortunately, Tamika, the world is about cycles. And we, we see some of the same things over and over and over again. Now, one of the things that I, I'm very, very comfortable with is that in the year uh, 21, 90 i may not be on this earth you know because that's a long 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 time from now however there was a time that i showed up and then there's going to be a time that i'm going to leave 
this time that I showed up is called my birthday. The time that I leave, they're going to put that on the other side of my headstone. This is when I left this earth. But I found out that those two dates are really not that important. What's important is the dash in the middle. And that's what you did while you were here. So it's important that we do something at this time. And if I can help one, two, 10, 100 kids, then, then I fulfill something that I was put on this earth for. Okay. And so getting back to the part about cycles, I just did some research on uh, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, and I found out that in 1897, W.E.B. Du Bois and his wife and a colleague actually moved into one of the poorest neighborhoods in Philadelphia because he was on a mission to find out why is it that a lot of these people in these inner cities are struggling? What's the answer? And then what's the solution? And so he actually moved into the neighborhood and lived for a year. He did a lot of interviews, he did over 5,000 interviews with the, with the people. He did some mapping to find out where are the grocery stores, where are the health clinics. And basically what he came, what it came down to after he got through with everything was he deduced that these people are living in the state that they're in because of lack of education, especially uh, literacy, crime, drug use, the way they viewed themselves and the way the outside world viewed them. And then this last one was kind of kind of puzzling to me. They were very leery of strangers. They didn't trust strangers. And so those were the points that he came with. And so he said, now, so what's the, what's the answer? What's the solution? The first thing that he listed as part of the solution was that America, white, black, all, we have to stop looking at black people as being inferior. White people, you have to stop looking at black people as being in, uh, beneath you. And black people, you have to stop looking at yourself as being beneath white people or others. Second thing is, uh, these people got to get educated. And the only way they're going to get educated is those with the education, those with the knowledge have to pitch in and teach. White, black, whoever, we've got to work together to help create a solution for the, for the problem. Now that was, that, it was published in a book called The Philadelphia Negro, and that was published in 1899. That was over 100 years ago. And some of the same things that W.E.B. Du Bois saw in that inner city in Philadelphia is some of the same issues that George grew up with. He grew up in uh, public housing. Okay, He went to an underfunded school, and therefore the school was underproducing. They weren't sending people off to Harvard and Yale and uh, Howard University or Morehouse or Spelman. Okay? crime all around and constant police harassment in the inner city. He grew up in those things. So he had a couple of strikes against him from the outset, okay? Because what he was seeing was what he was living. And when you see and live, it becomes you. Until you get some stronger force to show you something better, help you make up in your mind, I want to do better, and then help you get out of that situation and move on to something that is better. 
It's like a like a drug addict. They say the first thing that a drug addict has to do, has to do is admit they got a problem. Right. Absolutely. But and the thing is, we're we are products of our environment. And yes, we could people could say all day, well, you just have to want to do better. Well, what if you don't know what do better is because you haven't right. seen it, you haven't right. been exposed to it. That takes somebody like you just said, somebody else showing that to you. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. I mean, all the time, you know, if we, we can visualize, if we can believe it, we can achieve it. Well, you don't know what you don't know. Exactly. And one of the things that I've always said is I really, really want to be in a place to where I can help black kids understand we can do more than sing, dance and play ball. <laughs> you know, you know, I play seven instruments. Part of it is a gift. And actually, wow. one of the one of the uh, uh, instruments I play is guitar. And the person that taught me how to play guitar was George's father. He was a phenomenal guitar player. And when I was little, when I was probably George's age, you know, four or five, you know, when the last time I saw him, my uncle would sit me in his lap and then he'd have the guitar and he'd have my fingers, although they couldn't really stretch across the fretboard, but he'd have my fingers sort of position, whatever. And I saw that and I just looked and I picked up on it, but I was in an environment that fostered that type of stuff. Exactly. You know, exactly. it's like, it's like they say, hey, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Well, what if you don't have any boots? Right. What is your message this Black History Month in 2021? And I ask that because I think due to the events over the last nine months or so, um, I have had clients and I see corporate companies and I see nonprofits, all different types of organizations wanting to make sure they acknowledge Black History Month really double down on their messaging, put more um, investment, money, dollars behind Black stories and Black mm -hmm. history. Um, that feels different this year than in years past. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first and foremost, um, Black History Month. <laughs> I think you know where I'm going with that. Yes, I, I absolutely do. <laughs> uh, so if I, I was look... keeping it timely since this episode, <laughs> at the time of this episode, Eric, yes, it will come yes. out in Black History Month, but absolutely awesome. Black History is yeah. 12 months a year, not just there you go. during there you the go. I'm, I'm black every year. day. Absolutely. I'm black every day. And so what do you know about Black History? What do you know about what Black people have gone through? Sure, you want to put your dollars out there, and that's all well and good because we know that in a uh, capitalistic society, the dollar bill actually moves a lot of things. And if you really want to mess with somebody and make somebody mad, start messing in their pockets. Okay, but anyway, uh, what what is it that you really want to accomplish by saying, uh, major corporation, hey, we're supporting Black History Month? You know, what is it that you're trying to do? Are you trying to sell more product, or are you really trying to make a difference? And so if you really go back and look at the history, just go to one document and read this. I tell everybody, even black kids, especially read the Willie Lynch letter, read the Willie Lynch letter. And you don't even have to read the entire thing. Just read the first two pages. Where can we find that? Because I want to make sure I yeah. link to that below in the show notes. Okay. Yeah. If you just simply go to Google and type in Willie Lynch letters, that's W-I-L-L-I-E-L-Y-N-C-H. Willie Lynch was a plantation owner down in the Caribbean, 
and some of the Virginia plantation owners were having major problems with their slaves running off, being disobedient, and so forth and so on. Now, he ran a major plantation, because if you look at the Caribbean, the population of the Caribbean was like the population of South Carolina. You know there were more slaves in South Carolina than, were, than there were white people. A lot of people didn't know that. Just like in the Caribbean, there were more slaves down there than there were white people, but yet and still they had control over them. Well, part of it was because, you know, blacks didn't have guns or weapons, you know, but they had major control because they had control over this, over their mind. And so they asked him to come up and say, man, what is your secret? Tell us, how can we get our slaves under control? And I'm not going to give you the whole spiel, but I'm just going to give you a little nugget because this right here really, really sort of uh, uh, was the icing on the cake of all that he said. He said, I want you to get the biggest, baddest, blackest N-word on your plantation. Strip him down naked. Bring him out in front of everybody. Make sure every slave on your plantation sees this. Okay? And I want you to take his wrists and tie them to two horses. Okay? First, I want you to beat him within an inch of his life. And then I want you to whip those horses and make them run in opposite directions. So you can just about imagine what happened to him. Oh, gosh. He said, now, with everybody seeing this, here's what's going to happen. The mothers, who are the protectors of the family, are going to make sure that their sons don't do anything to make Master mad because they don't want this to happen to him. So if you can get into the psyche and the minds of the women on your plantation, they will be the ones that will control the men. And if you do this right, it will perpetuate itself for the next 300 years. What, was took, what took place back then is still taking place today. They would take the lighter skinned blacks and pit them against the darker skinned blacks. They would break up households so they got used to fathers leaving or children leaving. A lot of the stuff that they did back then, it perpetuated itself. I want to I want to kind of close on um, something we we mentioned the other day as far as changing the narrative. Mm -hmm. And that kind of being the root of your why with the George Floyd Memorial Center, what what is your hope for the narrative around George Floyd, his his life, um, his death, um, and going forward? What do you hope that that narrative is? So I hope that people will say, hmm, yeah, this, this is not right for a human being to do this to another human being. Let's see what we can do so that it doesn't happen again. You know, it's like farming. You plant the seed. You try to till the ground to make sure that no weeds or, you know, you can't control when the sun comes out. You can't control when it rains, but you do the best that you can with what you have. And you just pray for the best. And that's what we're doing is we're, you know, we're not going to stop until, you know, we're no longer able to do, but we just hope that we can do the best that we can. Absolutely. And, you know, thank you for sharing that story and being so open and doing... I know you have a lot of work ahead with the George Floyd Memorial Center and a lot of planning ahead and huge projects that you're working on to to bring all of this to life and really make an impact in Raleigh, North Carolina and beyond. So tell people how they can get in touch 
learn more and if they want to get involved, how they can do that as well. Okay, wonderful, and I appreciate that. But yes, we do have a website, and it's www.georgefloydmc.org. And if you go on our website and then go to the back where it says contact us, you know, let us know who you are and how you would like to uh, uh, participate. We are still putting things together because, as Tamika said early on, you know, it's only been nine months. And this is a project that we're not trying to do that's just going to last for a year or two years. This is something that we want to last, you know, for a very, very long time. You know, you look at certain dates. My dad is old enough to remember uh, Pearl Harbor. My dad was 11 years old on December 7th, 1941. But according to President Roosevelt, that's a date that will live in infamy. But I'll move ahead to 9-11. So that's the next one. Everybody remembers 9-11, where they were, what happened, how they felt. And so here's another date, in my opinion, that would live in, in infamy, and that's May 25th, 2020. That's the date that the, the world witnessed the murder of George Floyd. And so by looking at those dates that I just specifically named, people remember that, people honor that, people have you know, certain conversations about that. They're gonna always have conversations about what happened to George whether they felt that it was justified by the police officer or not. But we do know there's going to be conversations. So along with those conversations, what good is society going to get from it? And that's what we're trying to do. So jump on, contact us, let us know who you are. And trust me, uh, you'd be very much appreciated. Yes, we are 501c3, so your <laughs> donations are tax deductible. Absolutely. I'll make sure to link to the website below in the show notes. And do you guys have social media? Uh, yeah, go to, um, uh, I think it's George Floyd Memorial Center on Facebook and also George Floyd, Memo I think it's George Floyd Memorial Center on Instagram. Okay. And so you can do whatever you do on those. Perfect. So there's ways people connect, can connect with you on Facebook, Instagram, we'll link to that. And also, of course, go on over to your website. Well, Thomas, this exactly. has been such a pleasure. Again, thank you for being so open and honest, sharing your story, educating us, me included. I learned so much from you today as well. And also helping us understand what's next and the positive that can come out of such a horrific situation. So thank you for your part in that. Well, Tamika, thank you so much. And uh, I appreciate what you're doing to uh, bring various uh, podcasts to the forefront and help people learn what's out there. Because, you know, right now everybody's stuck in the house and we need things to look at. We need things to, to see and to do. You know, after a while, you want to turn the TV off and get some real knowledge. And so thank you for what you're doing. You know, uh, as they said in the old days, keep hope alive. Well, keep TV, keep, keep TV media alive and keep doing <laughs> what you do. Thank you so much. All right. God bless. My thanks to Thomas McLaurin for speaking so openly on this episode, honestly opening our eyes, educating us all which we can continue to do more and more each and every day, and also giving back in a positive way into this world. That's what this show is about, inspiring stories. And throughout the most difficult and horrific situations in our lives, we can turn those into our purpose, into our passion, and into something positive. And that's exactly what he's doing along with his other family members. 
So please make sure to go below in the show notes, connect with Thomas McLaurin, learn more about the George Floyd Memorial Center, the website, social media, all of that's linked below. And also make sure you connect with me. Stay in touch with me. I'd love to hear your feedback on this episode. I'm on LinkedIn at Tamika Bickham and also on YouTube at TB Media Group. Until next week, because I know I'll see you back for more inspiring health stories. Stay happy, stay healthy.